Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Ken. And welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we talk about all things Apple II. We'll cover news, reviews, eBay finds, and whatever else Apple II we can think of. There are other places to get your Apple II fix, but some of them have a long lead time, like print publications, whereas a podcast offers so much more. Mike, you and I have been talking about doing a podcast ever since we got home from Kansas Fest, because one of the great things about the Apple II is the community that's around it. And being at Kansas Fest and being with other geeks who like the same esoteric things that you do is an experience that you just really can't find almost anywhere else. Right, yeah, there's, there's an incredible dialogue there and some really great ideas that come up. Um, and uh, I, I think I think having a podcast like this where we can sit and chat with each other and with other Apple II users about this stuff uh, sort of fosters that intimate feeling that, that you might get. You know, one of my favorite podcasts is the Trek cast, which is the, just these two guys talking about Star Trek, which is a TV show that hasn't been on the air in six years. And they just have so much to say because they're spurring each other on and they're with somebody that likes the same things they do. And I think by having the two of us do this podcast, we'll be able to bring some of that experience home. Right, yeah. Apple discontinued the Apple II series, or the Apple II line in 1993, and uh, yet there's still plenty of new hardware and software coming out on a regular basis. And uh, it's great to be able to talk about it as it happens rather than uh, waiting for, say, a print publication. Remind me again why this podcast that we're doing is called the Open Apple Podcast. There's some history behind that name. Open Apple was one of the great early Apple II magazines. It was actually a newsletter that was published by Resource Central. I think Tom Weishar and Dennis Doms were behind that. Uh, it was published for many years and was filled with uh, a lot of really good Apple II information. And the idea of the Open Apple podcast is that we would sort of pay homage to that while also paying attention to news and events as they happen in the Apple II community today. So the fact that at Kansas Fest 2010... Tom Vanderpool and Dennis Doms were present and announced that the Resource Central catalog, including the old Open Apple publications, are now freely available under Creative Commons is just a coincidence. Uh, yes, actually it is. Yeah, because there are already a lot of entities in the Apple II community, and even though you and I are affiliated with several of them, this podcast is actually unaffiliated. It's just an independent production. Right, this is just two Apple II fans <laughs> chatting and having a good time. Can't think of anything I'd rather do with my weekend. <laughs> So tell me how you got into the Apple II. Uh, well, in 1981 or 82, my dad uh, bought a, an Apple II Plus, and he brought it home and set it up. And uh, he went off to work the next day, and I immediately set about disassembling the Apple II. I had pieces and parts all over the floor by the time he came home. And uh, he took one look at that, and he said, you're not going to sleep until that, that computer's back together and running again. So... At about 6 a.m. the next morning, as the sun was coming up, I hit the power button and it booted back up, and I promptly fell asleep on the floor. Did you have any spare parts? Uh, you know, I think I did, and I just sort of swept them under the carpet and <laughs> my dad wouldn't notice. And the Apple II still worked? It did, yeah. It's a fairly robust machine. I was surprised. And apparently that one experience was enough to hook you for life. It was, yeah. And uh, from there we went to the uh, Apple IIe. My dad bought that when... Uh, Shortly after, Apple started shipping the enhanced version with the, the enhancement kit built into it. Um, 
And when the 2GS came out, we went down to Egghead Software to take a look at that. And my dad took one look at that and said, "That's this is a dead-end machine. And it, it was kind of disappointing, but it's it's true that because Apple didn't support the machine, um, it competed directly with the Mac in a lot of areas. And uh, I think it made a lot of the Apple people uncomfortable. And what do you do with the Apple II now? Uh, well, I have several of them set up here in my office. Uh, I play with them on a regular basis, not not as much as I would like to. Say, you know, life gets in the way a lot, but uh, um, I test a lot, I test out hardware um, and write reviews for JuiceGS magazine. I'm actually trying to work out a way where I can go back to using the old AppleWorks word processor um, on my Apple II to do some blogging, but I'm not really sure what steps I'm going to need to take on that yet. Uh, you should talk to Dan McLaughlin. He runs a blog called Apple Slices. I think he might have switched it to WordPress, but I'm pretty sure historically he did all his blogging on an actual Apple II. Oh, that's a great tip. Thanks. Check that out. Sure. And what about you, Ken? What got you started in the Apple II? Well, my dad brought home an Apple IIe back in 83 when it came out, and I was just young enough that I don't remember ever not having it. I had three older brothers, and I would wake up every Saturday morning before any of them did and sneak downstairs so I could play the, all the games to myself, stuff like Agent USA and Castle Wolfenstein and Artie the Aardvark. We put our Apple II online around 88, which is the same time I switched to the Apple II GS, and I was using it as an enhanced Apple IIe, basically. Not literally. And I met a bunch of people on CompuServe, like Lauren Damewood and Scott Everts, and they told me all the other amazing things the Apple II GS could do, including the games it could run, and I encouraged my dad to buy a variety of very expensive hardware upgrades so I could do all these amazing things I was reading about. The Apple II was a great machine up until 97, when it was still a great machine, but I couldn't bring it with me to college, so I switched to an emulator, which I used exclusively for my Apple II fix, up until around 2008, when I went back to my parents' house and pulled out this spare 2GS that we had that I used to run a BBS on. I ran that from 93 to 97. And after 11 years, I booted it up, and it still worked great. So I have it hooked up here at my office in my workplace. And it's great because although emulation technically is a lot faster, there's nothing like actually using the metal that the machine was designed to run on. Sure. Now, now is this a BBS that we could call today? Unfortunately not. I shut it down when I went to college because I figured I wasn't going to be around anymore to follow up on it, the various issues and maintenance that it requires to be a, appropriate and attentive sysop but when i shut it down after four and a half years of running it i think it had about twenty thousand calls so i consider it to have been a successful run that sounds like a very successful board it was a good run and i enjoyed it a great deal but the telecommunications world has moved on from bbs's unfortunately there's still niche opportunities to enjoy that experience but i don't think that time is ever coming back so no my, even though i still have all my bbs files and i'm actually working on going through them to make sure I didn't have anything unique that isn't available elsewhere, I'm never going to be running a dial-up bulletin board again. Sure. Yeah, that was one experience that I did miss from the Apple II. Heyday, I never got to run a BBS. I, I wanted to, and my father said, there's no way I'm paying for extra phone lines for people to call your computer. But you were online? You were dialing others? Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I spent many, many hours after, uh, after school and into the late evenings chatting with people on the various local bulletin boards. And speaking of chatting people, we have a guest in the studio today. Hi, Andy. Hi, Ken. It's good to be here. Hey, Andy. Hi there, Mike. Uh, so, Andy, what brought you to the Apple II? 
Well, I had a friend back in the late 70s named Ethan, and his father actually was a dealer of Apple II computers. And so he had one at his house. It was probably a 2 or a 2 Plus, and I used to go over there and play Castle Wolfenstein. Um, that was my first exposure to a personal computer. And it took me till went away to college uh, to save up. I got a Laser 128, which was an Apple II compatible. I couldn't afford the real thing, but I remember the Computer Shopper magazine had a big display ad for... Like 350 bucks got you the system, a monitor, printer, the works. So that was my introduction to Apple II computing. And you still have an Apple II today? Oh, yes, all sorts of them now. Apple II Plus, IIe, IIgs, um, Franklin. I still haven't found uh, another Laser 128 yet. I sold mine many years ago, but someday I'll get one back. And you were telling me earlier that you just added another Apple II to your collection, right? Um, yeah, I just recently acquired an Apple IIgs Stealth, which is an Apple IIgs inside an Apple IIe case. Um, I've always liked the IIe form factor and the keyboard, so that's my latest acquisition, and I'm looking forward to getting that up and running. Oh, very nice. Cool. Well, I think that qualifies us to have a podcast. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. The great thing about the Apple II community today is there's still plenty of hardware and software being produced for it, and, and as long as there is, we'll have something to talk about. So is there anything you'd like to talk about, Ken? Well, one of the things I just saw on a2central.com is that there is somebody working on an Apple IIc smart port compact flash adapter. Now, most people are familiar with things like the MicroDrive Turbo Card and the compact flash for Apple Card all different ways to access this mass media, very affordable storage by plugging an expansion card into your Apple II. But the Apple IIc never had any expansion ports. That's why it was so compact. This gentleman, Robert Justice, is working on a way to read a compact flash card through the smart port, the external disk port on the Apple IIc. So it requires no expansion card. I think that's a fantastic idea, not just for Apple IIc users, but because not everybody likes cracking open their Apple II and using up one of those precious expansion slots for a compact flash reader. I assume, theoretically, this is something that any Apple II user can plug into their smart port and use to read compact flash. And anything that makes it easier to move data massively between the Apple II and another machine is great. Um, at this point, it seems like the card is very much a prototype um, the author's webpage does describe that it's it's working with reading and writing. Um, I don't see any plans posted about commercializing it or anything talking about any runs of cards that we can purchase. Um, I know that's a big step to go to, but 2C users are definitely sort of left out in the cold because we've been so lucky with the other pieces of hardware like CFFA that if you have the 2E, 2GS, 2 Plus, we've got a method to use external storage like this. So this would really fill a, a niche. Um, hoping in the next six months or a year we might see it come to fruition. Yeah, I, I agree. I I have a couple of Apple IICs myself, but I've never really been a heavy user of them specifically because there just hasn't been a lot of expansion, I guess, opportunities for the machine recently. You know, as you'd mentioned, there's these, these other cards all require a slot and they fit well in the 2E, the 2GS, but the 2C is often left out. And so this would be this will be neat. I don't know that this is one that I'll purchase myself, but I, I hope that if he does a commercial run, that 
you'll see some success with that. It's always good to see new hardware coming out. This kind of reminds me of those old, uh, I don't know if you remember, but they had the Apple IIc hard drives, the external hard drives that work through the smart port, and this looks very similar to that. Now, uh, one of the problems with those old hard drives was that they were very slow because they were talking through the smart port, and I wonder if this is going to suffer from the same problems. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. That I guess by plugging it directly into the motherboard, you bypass a lot of different issues and could get some speed, but then again, the Apple IIc users may not have that option, so this is better than nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, A2 Central isn't the only place for Apple II news. Uh, I was browsing Compsys Apple II this morning, and I saw a message for the Usenet downsizing. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this or not, but the Big 8 group is sort of an oversight committee. It's a, a loose cabal, I guess, that, that kind of oversees the wild, wild west that is, is Usenet today, and it looks like they're planning to downsize some low-traffic groups, including... Uh, CompsisApple2.gno, CSA2.com, and CSA2.user groups. I don't know about you guys, but I generally don't go into those groups anyway because there isn't any traffic, but uh, it is interesting to note that those those will probably be going away. I didn't even know those existed. The only CSA2 groups I go to is CSA2, like just plain vanilla, CSA2 programmers and CSA2 marketplace. I guess I completely overlooked that there might be other ones. Right. Well, and it looks like a lot of it, you know, you can find probably the comm stuff is in, in programmer, and there really aren't a whole lot of Apple II user groups, you know, regional ones out there anyway. I, I know at one point that that board was used to post meeting messages and that sort of thing. I think CSA2 GNO is that Unix project from a few years back for the Apple II GS, and there hasn't been any news on that front for quite a while until recently when Jeff Weiss announced that he was resurrecting that. The message you read about the downsizing, is this a call for discussion about whether or not this is an appropriate step, or is it an announcement that these things are going away? No, right now it's just an RFD, a request for discussion. Uh, if you go to big-8.org, uh, you can see the specific procedures that they follow to before any news group is removed. It looks like there's about 80 or 90 groups that are sort of on the table for discussion at this point. I've never been part of this process, but I think it's basically people talk about it for a while and then they take a vote, and if it passes, those groups are, are removed from the Usenet. Um, do either of you guys know, um, once these groups are removed, will the archives still be available in, say, the Google Groups interface? Google Groups archives pretty much everything. You know, you can go back to net.micro and the, the original Apple Usenet groups, and they're still on Google Groups. And I'm sure that even if Google didn't archive it, somebody like Jason Scott or an Apple II user who has the desire to capture that history would make it available somewhere. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of history, I recently saw a press release about a historical figure who's finally getting the recognition he deserves. The Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences is awarding the second annual Pioneer Award to Bill Budge, who for the Apple II, while he was working at Apple Computer, created the Raster Blaster pinball game, and then a few years later went to work for Electronic Arts and created the pinball construction set. Oh, right. Yes, uh, I, was, I was a big fan of both of those those pinball games. And for you Apple III fans out there, you, uh, you may not know that Bill Budge was also, uh, he was at Apple working on the Apple III video driver. Well, they can't all be winners. That's true. I remember the pinball construction set was quite the hit for him, and he took some years off from the industry then he went to work for Sony for six years and created some games there. 
And just this past October, he left Sony to go to work at Google, where he's going to be making some web games. So it's really cool to see that 25 to 30 years after these people were making headlines in the industry, they're still in the industry and they're still getting recognition. Right, yeah. I, I sometimes tend to forget that these guys went on to do other things in the industry. And so when I see Bill Budge's name, I'm like, oh, that Apple II guy from way back when. Well, no, he's been in the industry pretty much the whole time. Bill Budge always stood out for me because he was one of those guys where I could put a, name, a face to a name. Uh, if you remember the electronics art advertisements back in the 80s, they had all the prolific programmers back then, and they were almost like rock stars. And there was a picture of Bill Budge, uh, these black and white pictures, and he had a leather glove on one hand. And it, it was it was somebody I could actually, he stood out in my mind, and I was always able to remember him because of that. I remember in the early days of the electronic entertainment industry, publishers like Atari were actively trying to obscure the names of their programmers because they didn't want them to become celebrities that other studios would poach. So a programmer like Warren Robinette, who created the Apple II program Rocky's Boots, also created the Atari 2600 game Adventure and created an Easter egg where he put the credits for the game in because that was the only way he could get some recognition. So Bill Budge is basically like the archetype of a rock star programmer. He's one of the prototypes of what it's like for people to be recognized for their programming accomplishments, which even which today is even more difficult because you have celebrities in the electronic entertainment industry like Cliff Brzezinski and Dave Perry, but they're just individuals on teams of hundreds of people because that's how many it takes to create a game nowadays. Bill Budge was doing all this stuff on his own. Bill Budge is the second person to win this Pioneer Award, as I mentioned. The first was David Crane, one of the founders of... Activision and also the creator of Pitfall. I guess he was more of a console programmer. I'm not really sure he had much to do with the Apple II. Right. Yeah. I, I think he he had a uh, hand in designing the uh, Atari 800 operating system, and he worked on the display processing chip before he went off to to start Activision. I don't know that he really did anything that much with the Apple II. He did work on the Little Computer People, which was a a really important game in the Sim genre. Uh, this was pre-Sim City, and it was a game where the disc that you got actually had some little sort of pseudo-genetic code so that your little computer person would be different than your friends, and you could trade discs and, I guess, have the people um, uploaded to each other's houses. But it was a very, very unique game. Hmm. Sort of a very early version of The Sims. Huh. I guess this Pioneer Ward really is going to pioneers. I mean, Bill Budge, after the success of Pinball Construction Set, worked on the idea for a construction set construction set, which would allow you to create any kind of game you wanted. The concept was a little bit too complex for the hardware of the time, but nowadays there are plenty of programs like that in use at colleges that are offering majors in game design, and students use these game design templates and formulas to make their first game and just to get a feel for it. So... Yeah, Bill Budge was definitely ahead of his time. It's very interesting to see how the ideas of these early programmers and visionaries are showing up in you know everyday life these days. Oh, and this is kind of old news at this point, but another Apple II celebrity who's getting his dues is Bob Bishop. Oh, yes, Bob Bishop. I, I spent several hours uh, interviewing Bob for a 
a JuiceGS piece a couple of years back, and uh, I guess he's going to be our keynote speaker at uh, Kansas Fest 2011, and I, personally, I can't wait to meet him. He seems like a really great guy, and I'm, I'm betting he's got a, a whole lot more stories than he had time to tell me when we did the interview. Now, he created the Apple Vision demo, which was the dancing TV figure to Turkey on the Straw, right? Right, he created that. He created uh, Apple Talker, which was a, a text-to-speech program for the Apple II. He created Apple Listener, which was a program designed to record sound so that you could play it back on your Apple II. Uh, he created some of the, the early uh, Apple II video games, and he also co-founded the R&D Lab with, with Woz at Apple. Okay. And speaking of Woz, he was just at the Computer History Museum a couple of months ago. He was doing a guided tour for the press at the museum in Mountain View, California, on an exhibit that just opened last month, a sneak preview he was offering. The exhibit's called Revolution, the First 2,000 Years of Computing. And a JuiceGS reader, Brian Weiser, went to the exhibit, and he sent me back some pictures of the Apple IIs that they have on display there. It looks like a great place. I would love to check it out. I highly recommend a visit to the Computer History Museum. Um, I've been there twice, um, both times they had different exhibits and they really did cover a range of things. Some of it was very hands-on. In addition, if you're, if you're going there, you might as well make a side trip to Bruce Dammer's Digibarn Museum, which is up in the hills, um, I think a little south of, the, of San Jose. But he has a complete museum to computers uh, built in his barn. And the upstairs is all the computers, and downstairs is a couple of pigs that live in a that <laughs> live in the hay. <laughs> and um, Bruce has some important early artifacts of Jeff Raskins. Jeff was uh, the originator of the Macintosh idea, although it changed um, concepts before when Steve Jobs got a hold of it. But um, it's highly worth a trip, and Bruce is a very personable guy and is very hands-on with his collection. Oh, thanks for the tip. I'd love to get out there and see these things, but one thing I won't be able to get if I go out there is a guided tour from Steve Wozniak. And I wish the Computer History Museum would hand out those little audio self-guided tours at the entrance so you can walk around and see things and have somebody talking to you on a set of headphones. And they should have that recorded voice be Steve Wozniak so everybody can get their own personal tour with Woz. That'd be very cool. I'd pay top dollar for that. Yeah, me too. I know there's a there's a lot of history out there, computer history out there in, in the Silicon Valley area, of course. Uh, one of these days, I'm planning to take a road trip out to out there and spend a week or two and just go to these different places. I'll meet you there. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll make that three. I'll join you. I'll actually be in the backseat of the car playing a, a new iOS game that just came out just yesterday, Retro Trek, a full emulated clone of the old Star Trek basic game that was one of the very early programs that was put out by Apple. It's um, The interface has been tuned up so that it works better on your touch screen. The unique thing about it is every time you click any of the buttons, you're getting the sound of an actual key press from an Apple, Apple II keyboard. Oh, wow. And it's all in ASCII characters, so the Klingon ship, the Enterprise are all represented by capital letters, your stars are asterisks, and I've been having fun with it. Um, it's one of the first games I learned how to play on the Apple II, so it's fun to have it in a little carry-on device. How much did you pay for that? It's 99 cents. It's a steal. I'll say. Now, is this the Star Trek game that was designed by Bob Bishop? Is that what they based it on? They actually um, referred to Dr. Wendell Sander in 1978 as one of the first people to 
adapt it. And they talked about it being first on mainframe computers and then put over to the Apple II. Oh, right. Uh, Dr. Sander, who uh, basically created the, the Apple III. So maybe they'll do the Bob Bishop game for iPhone next. There you go. I love seeing people doing new projects that are inspired by classic tech like this is. And they recently had an entire competition for something like that. The Retro Challenge happens every summer and inspires people to, like I said, do new projects based on retro computing. There's also a winter version called the Retro Challenge Winter Warm-Up, and it's usually run by Dale Goodfellow, who founded this tradition. He was unavailable at this time of year to have the 2011 competition, so it was picked up by a volunteer named Urban Camo. And he recently concluded the event. It ran all the month of January, and there were 25 participants. And if you go to the website, the link to which will be in the show notes, you can see different people working on different things. Earl Evans from the Retro Bits podcast was working on a storage option for his Commodore Pet. Another person was working on writing a text adventure based on his favorite film, Silent Running. There are really almost no rules, unlike HackFest, which is held at Kansas Fest. This event can be done in any kind of hardware, new or old. They just announced the winners yesterday, and there are three in no particular order, and one of them was done on an Apple II. This gentleman basically took some high-resolution images and turned them into a full-motion video, which is available on YouTube. And I don't know that I've necessarily seen anything like that, but again, it's pretty cool that people who want to be inspired by retro tech and can't make it to Kansas Fest have this option that's open to anybody around the world and has an entire month to work on this stuff. Yeah, I, I really love these contests, um, you know, like Hackfest and Retro Challenge. I have not participated myself in Retro Challenge, but I have sort of kept an eye on it. And it's neat to see. It reminds me a lot of, do you guys remember the old uh, Beagle Bros ads in like Nimble Magazine where they had like the, the two-line program listings? in basic and you type it in and type them in and they would do all these incredible things. Sure. It, it sort of reminds me of, of that sort of creative energy that you can do almost anything on these machines and have a great time doing it. What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. A lot of the hardware and software that Apple II users had 30 years ago is still available today, but not brand new, which means we need to go to places like eBay and Craigslist. The days when we could go to a thrift store or a Goodwill store or a yard sale and find whatever we wanted, unfortunately, is pretty well behind us. And on eBay and Craigslist, you sometimes end up paying top dollar because of the publicity that has been generated by high-profile sales of an Apple I at Christie's of London for over $200,000. And just last month, a gentleman named Scott King paid $5,000 for a brand-new inbox Apple IIc. Now, he was using it as a collector's item, so that might be worthwhile. But for somebody who just wants to use an Apple II, they sometimes end up paying quite a bit. I think it's sort of a trade-off these days. Uh, what you give up in price, I think you gain back in convenience and, and ease of purchase. I mean, I as recently as 10 years ago, I could walk into a local thrift store and walk out with an armload of Apple II gear. And that, I haven't been able to do that since 2004, 2005. Um, but the stuff still shows up on eBay. And, and unfortunately, in a lot of cases, that's the only place to get that stuff. Just seven years ago, I went to a scrap metal dealer. And they had a bunch of Apple II stuff, and they basically said for 10 bucks you can have as little or as much of it as you want. And a lot of it was just generic, like keyboards and mice, but I found a rare sound card or something, or a sound adapter. 
Nowadays on eBay, that same thing would by itself would probably go for a hundred bucks. But there are occasionally some pretty interesting items to find, regardless of the prices, and some of them actually do go for reasonable prices. Right. Yeah, I was uh, browsing the other day and I came across a copy of Raster Blaster. Since we were talking about Bill Budge's uh, classic video games on the Apple II, um, and the starting bid on this one's only nine dollars and twelve cents. Now I don't know if it's going to go for more than that, just because it. This doesn't have the, the original packaging. It looks like it's just the reference card and the disc itself. It doesn't even have a, a sleeve for the floppy. Hmm. And he says he's not even able to test it to see if the disc still works. Right, so I, I can't I can't see that one going for too much money. And even if it goes for the minimum bid of 9 bucks and 12 cents, the shipping alone is even more than that. So you'll end up paying about 20 bucks for a disc without a sleeve, and that's just about it. Right. And for... Items on the high end of the scale, um, we've got one copy of Microsoft Adventure going for a starting bid of almost $400. It has no bids and uh, only a day or so <laughs> left at this time. But Microsoft Adventure, that's the original Colossal Cave that was on the mainframe systems. Um, so this is a very important text adventure game that really kicked off the whole genre. Uh, the, it's a sort of a crushed box, but the box has some interesting artwork on it. And, you know, if it were more in my price range, that'd be one I'd snatch up in a moment. Now, wait a minute. I've, I've never heard of this game, but you're saying that Microsoft took the Colossal Cave that is on every single computer and operating system that has ever existed and ever will exist and is freely available for almost any device, and they adapted it to an Apple II version, and this gentleman is selling an open copy for $400. And that's... An auction. That's the starting bid. Well, figure at the time, you could only get this game on a mainframe. So this was one that was first starting to come out um, onto personal computers. So the idea that you could take these games home and play with them was very attractive. Well, I can understand that, but this isn't 1979 anymore. He's not selling this for 400 bucks back then. I mean, if it was autographed or still in the shrink wrap, maybe, but what kind of person would buy that? It seems exorbitantly high to me, but, you know, I guess you could look at, you know, early versions of Ultima 1, Ultima 2. They certainly go for a lot, and this is such an important game in the in the whole industry that I could see some collectors maybe going for it. I guess. It won't be me. This looks like a, a, something for the hardcore collector. If you look at some of the Infocom titles and, and Sierra online games, uh, you see a, a similar price differential there with a lot of the titles going for hundreds and hundreds of dollars. It's not one that, you know, maybe like you and I would buy and, and bring it home and hope to play it on the Apple II. This is probably going to go on somebody's shelf as a collector's item and hopefully gain in value over time. Well, if you want to buy something on eBay that you actually can show off to people, there is somebody selling a t-shirt. So this shirt, it's a white long sleeve shirt. It has a musical cleft on the front with the Apple rainbow of colors. And on the back, it says... Apple IIGS College. Huh. Now, I didn't know what that was, so I looked it up, and it seems that Apple held an event called an Apple IIGS College in the spring of 87, and it was apparently the only time they ever did so. It was $500 to attend, which didn't include airfare or hotel, but it was three days long, so 500 bucks to get in wasn't all that bad, and apparently somebody attended this event, and this says the shirt has never been worn or owned before. doesn't say what size, small or large, but it does give measurements you know your own measurements you can figure out if it'll fit or not and you can buy this for uh, a 
buy it now price of eight bucks or a starting bid of five bucks, both of which are pretty reasonable. And then shipping is only another six bucks. So if you want an Apple II shirt that I've never seen worn at any Kansas Fest in the 13 years I've been going, you can have something unique. Although why you'd want to wear a long sleeve shirt in Kansas City in July is beyond me. How well do you know your Apple soundtrack? See if you can name the game. Now here's a feature I like to call Name the Game, blatantly stolen from Major Nelson's Xbox podcast, one of the best podcasts you can find if you are any sort of fan of modern-day video games or computer games, whether or not they're on the Xbox. The way it works is simple. I play a short audio clip from an Apple II game. It could be from 30 years ago. It could be from yesterday. It could be 8-bit. could be 16-bit. And your job is to identify the game from which that sound comes based on just this one clip. Ready? Here it is. That's it. Send your guesses to name the game at open-apple.net. And for a prize, how about any free JuiceGS concentrate? It's a PDF value of anywhere from $5 to $15. And we'll think of some more interesting prizes to give away in the future as the contest gets more difficult. Do either of you recognize that game? I do. No, I was stumped. Well, don't ruin it for him, Mike. Of course. And speaking of old games, Andy and I just yesterday were at Fun Spot, which according to the Guinness Book of Records is the world's largest arcade. It's up in Laconia, New Hampshire. They have over 200 machines from the 80s, and each is still just a quarter. And they also had several games that Apple II users would recognize. The translation from arcade to home entertainment is very popular, as it was back then. But the very first game to ever be translated from the computer to the arcade was an Apple II game. And that was by Dan Gorlin, and it was Choplifter. And Funspot had a cocktail Choplifter, which is the flat kind that you sit down at that you often find in bars, that you can put your whiskey sour down while you're playing the game. Um, I was actually looking for the game, I think it's called Space Panic, which reminded me of the old Apple Panic game where you had to dig a little hole for the creatures to fall into, and then you would have to cover them up, try to do a way to get to the next level. But in addition to that, um, we discovered a new arcade in Pelham, New Hampshire, and that was called Pinball Wizard. And it specializes in pinballs, although it had a lot of classic arcade games. But we were really struck by the quality of the restoration on a lot of these machines. They were really well done, in great shape, and you could play all of them for you know $0.25, cents, $0.50. Cents. Yeah, I had the opportunity to speak with the owner, and I told her that her pins were just in remarkable condition. She says it's taken over 31 years to assemble this collection. She restored them all herself. And the fact that there's an arcade opening that's over 9,000 square feet in the year 2011 is just remarkable. And I really hope that this place does very well. They have over 200 machines, 70 pinball machines in addition to that. And she gave me a guided tour of the back room where she has several more machines, dozens if not hundreds, in various states of repair and disrepair that she hopes to make available. So if this place continues to go gangbusters, we can expect it to get much bigger. And maybe it will even threaten Funspot's title to the world's largest arcade. Oh, you guys are really lucky out there. Oh, we have everything up here in New England. Where else are you going to get to play Elton John, Captain Fantastic, Pinball? Perfect. Ah. 
yeah, Andy came out here just for this weekend to make these trips with me to play these classic arcade games, but now he's headed home. If he's going to catch his train, we better wrap up this podcast. All right. Well, it was nice to talk to you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much for getting this ball rolling, Mike. It's great to be here. Sure. Andy, thanks for stopping by. Oh, I had fun. Thank you. Yeah, and I lo- I'm looking forward to doing this every month. I don't know if that's realistic. It's certainly unambitious enough that I think we should be able to maintain it for a little while. I think it gives us a good starting point for the future. If anybody else is looking to get your retro computing fixed via podcast in the meantime, there are several other retro computing podcasts you can listen to. Those include the Retro Matcast, which publishes every Saturday by James and John, the Retro Computing Roundtable, which is brand new from David Grealish every three weeks, Retro Bits by Earl Evans every three weeks, and our own Apple II podcasts, which are on infrequent publishing schedules, those being Ryan Suinaga's A2 Unplugged and Carrington Vanton's 1 Megahertz. You know, it's interesting that when we started talking about doing our own podcast, when we got back from Kansas Fest last year, the podcast scene was very different from what it is now. In the time since we started talking about this, RetroBits came off hiatus and started publishing every three weeks like clockwork. One megahertz published its first episode in two and a half years. And David Grealish launched the Retro Computing Roundtable, which has been publishing every three weeks. So I hope that there's still room for an Apple II podcast among all those. No, I think it's great that we're a part of this community, and I'm sure that we'll find at least a few listeners out there. Yeah, maybe we'll even have a few of them on the show. That'd be great. Well, I'll talk to you in a month, Mike. Talk to you soon, Ken. Thanks for being here, Andy. It was my pleasure. Talk to you again soon. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our newsletter, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net.